Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I come to you this week on a sad note. My colleague, mentor, and friend for nearly 50 years, Dr. John X. Evans, passed away this morning, December 1st, after a long illness. I met Jack as a 24-year-old college freshman at Arizona State University, fresh out of the Marine Corps. I had a lot of questions about life in those days, and I entered Arizona State with a double major in English and philosophy. Jack was a professor in the English department. Over the years, I took every course that Jack ever taught, and he and I spent many long hours in his office, usually on Tuesday afternoons, talking about everything from literature and philosophy to movies we had seen. I had grown up in the Presbyterian Church, but when I turned 18 and left home for the Marine Corps, I didn't have to go to church anymore. Well, so I didn't. After I met Jack, that changed. Unbeknownst to me, the hound of heaven was chasing me down. Jack was a devout Roman Catholic, and I knew that. But he never tried to evangelize me, at least not overtly. Jack was simply the most genuinely good man I've ever known. If he evangelized me, he did it by the example of his life, not by clever apologetics. I remember sitting in his office one Tuesday afternoon, and we were talking about God. I was writing my master's thesis on John Milton's Paradise Lost, and it was an appropriate topic. I had an academic knowledge of God, but I really knew very little about him personally. Jack said, if you want to know more about God, there are two books you should read. C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy and Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. I read them and it changed everything. The Hound of Heaven had me firmly by the scruff of the neck. The next week I said to Jack, I think I'd like to become a Roman Catholic. He looked surprised. He said, well, maybe we should go talk to a priest. So we walked over to the Newman Center on campus and we met Father Tom DeMann. <laughs> now keep in mind that this was the 70s. Father Tom was a young guy in his 30s with long hair and a scraggly beard. He leaned back in his chair and he said, how can I help you? And I said, I think I'd like to become a Roman Catholic. Great, he said. How about this Sunday? And that was it. No RCIA, no nothing. That Sunday, I became a practicing Roman Catholic. And as Jack liked to say, and someday, if Bill keeps practicing, maybe he'll get it right. 
Now oh, that was nearly 50 years ago. Aristotle wrote about friendship in his Nicomachean Ethics. And he classified friendship into three categories. Friendships of utility, those friendships where people are useful to one another as in a business relationship. Friendships of pleasure, where people enjoy sharing interests. And friendships of virtue, those friendships where people share fundamental spiritual, moral, and ethical values. Friendships rooted in honor, courage, and commitment. You know, if one finds a single friendship of virtue in a lifetime, he or she is very fortunate. Jack and I shared a friendship of virtue. When I die, if I'm half the man Jack was, I'll be very happy indeed. In the meantime, I shall miss him dearly. Jack introduced me to the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the things I love about our church is liturgy, the formal celebration over a one-year period of events in Jesus' life and in the life of the church. Last Sunday, November 25th, marked the end of the church's liturgical year with the Feast of Christ the King. This Sunday, December 2nd, the liturgical cycle begins anew with Advent. For the rest of this liturgical year, most of the Sunday Gospel readings will be from the Gospel according to Luke. Did you know that if you attend Mass every Sunday over a three-year period, you'll have heard all four Gospels read, proclaimed, and taught from the pulpit. The first year, Cycle A, covers the Gospel according to Matthew. The second year, Cycle B, covers Mark. And the third year, Cycle C, covers Luke. We read John's Gospel during the Easter season every year. In addition, the Sunday readings include an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, and a New Testament reading, often from one of St. Paul's letters or one of the other New Testament books. A priest or a deacon then preaches a homily or a sermon on that Sunday's readings. And if you go to Mass every day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, during the three-year cycle, you'll have heard, not quite, but almost, the entire Bible being read and taught. Now that is very cool. The first half of Mass focuses on reading and understanding Scripture, while the second half celebrates the Eucharist, or Communion, as Protestants call it. And this happens every day of the year throughout the entire world. If I go to Mass in San Diego, New York, London, Paris, Rome, Istanbul, or Timbuktu, I'll hear the exact same set of readings on the exact same day over the entire three-year cycle. Hey, 
There's no excuse for Catholics not to know Scripture and to know it really well. And that got me to thinking. As we ended this past liturgical year, each day we had a reading from the book of Revelation, starting on Monday, November 19th, and ending on Saturday, December 1st. Clearly, the book of Revelation is, to most people, a mysterious, rather cryptic work, a book filled with weird visions, frightening imagery, and confusing references. Indeed, from the second through the fourth centuries, debate raged as to whether Revelation should even be in the Bible. It was finally accepted at the Council of Hippo in AD 393, 300 years after it was written. As far back as the second century, Syrian Christians rejected Revelation as heretical. In the fourth century, Gregory of Nazianzus viewed it as difficult and dangerous. Martin Luther held it in contempt as being neither apostolic nor prophetic. And it's the only New Testament book for which John Calvin did not write a commentary. In modern times, Thomas Jefferson omitted Revelation from his Jefferson Bible, considering it to be the ravings of a maniac. Frederick Engels dismissed it as no more than a political anti-Roman work. And George Bernard Shaw thought of it, of all things, as a peculiar record of the visions of a drug addict. Well, if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, we have to approach it as we would any other ancient work of literature. First, we have to understand the historical and cultural context from which it emerges. Second, we have to understand the literary genre in which Revelation was written. Third, we have to understand the structural and stylistic devices used to build the work. And fourth, we have to understand the message the author intended for his immediate audience to receive. Hey, this is basic literary analysis, folks. Without it, we're almost certain to walk down any path that happens to be popular at the time, as goofy as it may be. For example, in 1970, Hal Lindsey published The Late Great Planet Earth, which sees the apocalyptic events of Revelation unfolding in the 1980s. It sold 28 million copies by 1990, spawned several sequels, including Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, and a movie, The Late Great Planet Earth, in 1979, narrated by Orson Welles. Well, not to be outdone, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins published the Left Behind series from 1995 to 2007, 16 novels that roughly follow the Revelation narrative and feature the adventures of the Tribulation Force as they battle the global community and its leader, Nikolai Carpathia, 
the Antichrist. The Left Behind series sold over 65 million copies, spawned four movies and three video games. Lindsay, LaHaye, and Jenkins made a ton of money from Revelation. <laughs> Looks like I missed the boat on that one. It's all entertaining stuff, but it's all silly. Like every work of literature and every book in the Bible, the book of Revelation is a product of its own time, in its case, the second half of the first century AD. That was a tumultuous time indeed, politically, economically, culturally, and religiously. Those 50 years saw eight emperors, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, seven of whom met violent deaths. A persecuted minority within the Roman Empire, the emerging church became the target of two state-sponsored persecutions, one under Nero, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred during that time, and the other under Domitian. Rome burned twice. In AD 66, the Jews, in one of the most stupid moves in all of history, declared war against the Roman Empire, resulting in Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed in AD 70 and bringing 1,000 years of temple worship to an abrupt end, and it's never been restarted. Mount Vesuvius erupted in AD 79, and as the last eyewitnesses of Jesus' public ministry were dying out, a generation of oral teaching and preaching coalesced in the written Gospels, in which one reads Jesus' own words in the Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Matthew 24. If we were Christians living in the second half of the first century, we might well imagine we hear the squeaking axles of the chariots of fire as the four horsemen of the apocalypse line up for Armageddon. Jesus certainly thought so. Revelation is a thrilling 
book. But it takes work to understand it. The sweat of the brow, my friends, the sweat of the brow. But hey, it's a lot of fun too. I just finished teaching a full course on Revelation, and it's in the Logos online classroom. It's a really good course, I think, and it will give you a solid understanding of Revelation. The audio version on audible.com has 260 reviews, 216 of them five star for an average of 4.8 stars. The online classroom version is better, I think, more in-depth, and much more comprehensive. Now, since we've just ended the liturgical year, and we're starting a brand new one, you can sign up for the Revelation course in the online classroom during the month of December at 50% off the usual price. Hey, make it a Christmas gift to yourself. You can get your 50% discount by going to the Logos Online Classroom and using coupon code REVELATION at checkout. That's coupon code REVELATION. Now, back to the show. Well, with that, let's turn to a few questions that have come in over the past couple of weeks. I have one here from Randy in Miltona, Minnesota. And Randy writes regarding Exodus 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. Parenthetically, at that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And Randy asks, why was the Lord trying to kill Moses? I don't get it. Well, that's a really good question. And boy, it's a strange story. Robert Alter, a great biblical scholar and a professor emeritus of comparative literature at UC Berkeley, he writes in the five books of Moses, this elliptic story is the most enigmatic episode in all of Exodus. It seems unlikely that we'll ever resolve the enigmas it poses. Well, let's take a shot at it. Recall that Moses grew up in Egypt. He was born, and Pharaoh had ordered that all the Jewish boys, the Hebrew boys, be drowned in the Nile. But he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, Hatshepsut, as we've identified her, and he's brought up as the grandson of Pharaoh. He's brought up as an Egyptian. In fact, the first 40 years of his life, he spent in the palace. He spoke Egyptian, he looked Egyptian, he knew the Egyptian customs, he knew the Egyptian gods. He knew nothing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until that God appeared to him in the burning bush. And he said to Moses, I want you to go back and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Moses had several reasons why he couldn't do it, but God wins out. So Moses is now on the way to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And that's where we enter our story. Moses had married Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and she was not uh, an Egyptian. She was not a Jew. But I imagine along the way, Moses said, you know, 
there's a requirement that God made of we Jews. And he made it back in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham. In a phantasmagorical story, God says to Abraham, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household and bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, apparently Moses had heard about this. And in fact, Egyptians were circumcised as well. There are several depictions in Egyptian art of young men being circumcised. So it's nothing new that God invents. The Egyptians have been doing it for a thousand years before Moses. But I imagine that Moses said to Zipporah, you know, if I'm going to do this job for God, we're his covenant people, we Hebrews, and our boys must be circumcised. What? They have to be circumcised. You want to cut off what? And I suspect Zipporah flatly refused. So Moses, well, gave in. But along the way, God became angry with him. Look, if you can't do this for me, and I, I want you to go to Egypt and get my people out of there, huh, and you can't even do this? Well, Zipporah, oh, they had a big blowout. Zipporah and Moses have a very rocky relationship. In fact, in the end, Moses will get rid of Zipporah and marry somebody else. But Zipporah said, fine, you want to circumcise them? And she took a flint knife and she circumcised the boys and she took the foreskins, threw them at Moses and said, you bridegroom of blood, you barbarian. And I think that's probably the way it went. And we have another question, this one from Debbie Creamer, who wants to know about the conquest of Jericho and Ai. Now you might recall at the end of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are about to cross over the Jordan River and begin the conquest of the land of Canaan, starting at Jericho. And God tells the Israelites that when you take Jericho, you are not to take any plunder. Put the city under the ban, that is, kill every living thing in it, men, women, children, infants, dogs, cats, chickens, everything, and take no plunder. The plunder is dedicated to me, God. Well, why do men fight in battle? If we go back to stories like the Iliad uh, or the Odyssey, men fight for plunder, for honor and for plunder. At Troy, Achilles, the greatest warrior among the Greeks, is given the largest share of plunder. When we get up to David's time, David makes the decision that every man in his military, when he had 600 tough mercenaries working for him, when he was an outlaw on the run, that every man 
working under him, would share equally in the plunder. Those who stayed in the rear with the gear and those who were in the front lines would share equally. That was something of a radical move on David's part because, for the most part, men fought in battle, not for God, not for country, for plunder. So plunder is how they got paid. And the better your performance, the more plunder you got. But the plunder went to the king, and the king then distributed that plunder, whether by merit in battle or equally, as with David, to his men. The plunder belonged to the king. So with Jericho, God made a point. You're not fighting this battle. You're not conquering the land of Canaan. For the plunder you can get, it belongs to me. So you take nothing from Jericho. And that's what they did. Now, when they attacked Ai next, they took plunder and it was to go to God. But presumably, God said, no, I'll allow you to share in the plunder this time. So God is giving what rightfully belongs to him to the men who attack Ai. Now, Debbie's question had to deal with the first fruits. It's a different topic, and I don't think it applies in this particular case. Men fight for plunder. The king gets the plunder. The king distributes the plunder as he wills. Our third and final question comes from Duffy Walton. And he writes, In all the Hebrew canon, I can think of no reference to an afterlife other than vague shadows in Sheol. Yet, in 2 Maccabees, there are several clear statements of firm belief in resurrection. So where did this come from? Isn't this book uh, a 2nd century BC literature? What's the relationship to future Christian thought? Well, that's a really good question, Duffy, and it involves a good insight on your part. The idea of an afterlife that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures early in the Old Testament is truly rather vague. Uh, shadows in Sheol, if you will. When we get to the Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey, uh, Odysseus takes a journey to the land of the dead, where people he knows are there, but they're, it's vague. They're, they're disconnected from uh, any sensory perception. They're flitting about like bats, squeaking and gibbering. There's, there's no sense of reward, no sense of punishment. They simply are shades, if you will. Odysseus is told to dig a trench fill it with blood, and those shades will come to the blood to drink the blood. We read in Leviticus, the life of a creature is in the blood. So the idea being that if they drink the blood, they retain, they regain a, 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 a sense of identity of who they are, of uh, being aware. And that's what happens. And Odysseus sees his own mother there, and he talks with her. Well, that's one step further. In the book of Ezekiel, in the Valley of Dry Bones, we see a valley filled with human bones. And suddenly, as Ezekiel is seeing in this vision, the bones begin to shake and rattle, the rattling bones. And they begin to come together and stand up and take on flesh. And they become alive. 
there's a picture of resurrection. But it's unique at that point. As we continue along in Scripture into the second century, Second Maccabees, for example, the idea of an afterlife is becoming more and more clear. Virgil writes the Aeneid, and in Virgil's Aeneid, he too takes a journey to the underworld, to the land of the dead, and it's very concrete. He encounters people he recognizes, they speak, uh, he sees things that are familiar to him. It's much more concrete than anything before. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's taken on a real sense uh, of concreteness, an afterlife in which there's a place for those who live bad lives and a place for those who live good lives. We see that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and he's living in flames and in a terrible place. And Lazarus, the poor man, is in the bosom of Abraham. So we have a clear sense of reward and punishment by the time we get to the New Testament. As that idea continues along, probably the best example of a fully developed sense of afterlife is in Dante's Divine Comedy, where Dante is guided by Virgil, the poet, through hell, the inferno, through purgatory, the purgatorio, and into paradise, the paradiso, where Virgil passes Dante on to Beatrice, who leads him to the beatific vision of God. A very, very concrete sense of an afterlife uh, in the Divine Comedy. I wrote an article way back, the very first article I had published as an academic, way back in the early 80s, I believe it was, called The Shifting Landscape of Hell, where I tracked the concept of hell from something very amorphous to something very concrete in Dante. Well, we could do the same thing with the concept of heaven and the concept of purgatory as well. So it's a developing concept that we see uh, across literature over about, gosh, a 1,500-year period. So thank you for that question, uh, Duffy. I really appreciate it. Have a blessed Advent, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.